Welcome to Where I Come From, a new podcast dedicated to Nebraska sports figures and the life experiences that shaped them. I'm your host, Dirk Chatlin, and this week's guest is Kyle Peterson, Omaha native, Stanford All-American, Milwaukee Brewers first-round draft pick, and college baseball analyst for ESPN. We talked about growing up at Rosenblatt Stadium, the culture shock of Stanford, his turbulent pro career, and finding his voice in the broadcast booth. We had a scouting report that we would get on every hitter, and it had nine different boxes, and the boxes were color-coded based on whether or not that was where you ought to go after a guy. And for Bonds, all nine were red. I went out in the car and just sat there and bawled for like 15 minutes. And I wasn't, it wasn't that I was mad because I knew that I shouldn't, I knew that I shouldn't be playing. Um, it was that realization of, that's it. You're not explaining everything like you are on radio. And it took years for me to figure that out. This is where I come from. We're going to cover a lot of ground, but I want to start with this. Uh, in 1999, you're, you're 23 years old. And you, um, you get called up to the Brewers in July. And you make 12 starts in the summer of 99. And looking back at that, what, what interested me was not only that you're doing that at 23 and two years out of college, but um, I was looking back through the box scores and it's, you know, Kyle versus Mike Piazza, Kyle versus Mark McGuire, Kyle versus Barry Bonds, Kyle versus Tony Gwynn. Is there is there an encounter that summer that stands out in your memory? Is there a game that stands out in your memory? Um, yeah, there's a few. There We played San Francisco on a Saturday, and it was some game of the week, and I don't remember what channel it was on, but... Um, and it was the first time I had faced Bonds, I guess, in spring training, but that doesn't really count. So it was the first time I had faced Bonds, and I think it was the year before Sosa and McGuire went totally crazy. Year after. Year after, okay. Yep. Um, and it, there's something about a few of those guys, and it's a few of those was Bonds, Sosa, and McGuire that was just different. Like you couldn't take the name off their back for pretty much anybody else that I faced I could take the name off their back and go about it like you normally would and try to find strengths and weaknesses and I remember we had a scouting report that we would get on every hitter and it had nine different boxes and the boxes were color coded based on whether or not that was where you ought to go after a guy and for Bonds all nine were red (laughs) which basically meant there's nowhere to go Um, and for whatever reason that day I mean I I think we got beat 2-1 and he, uh, he ground, I think he ground out the second baseman once or twice and popped up to the catcher. And, and um, so for that short period of time, there was some level of success against one of the best hitters that's ever lived. Now You conquered Barry Bonds. Let's be blunt about it. Yeah, yeah obviously. Um, <laughs> and it was, the other one that sticks out was at Wrigley because I had gone into the bullpen at the back end of the year and they made a few starts at the very end. So I'm the last guy in the bullpen at Wrigley, and we go into extra innings, and there's a guy at third base with one out, and Sosa's up. And at the time, 
by that point, Phil Garner had been fired and Jimmy Lefevre was our manager. And Frenchie came out and said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to face him. Kind of shook his head a little bit, turned around, walked away. And two pitches later, Sosa hits a ball to deep left field. They catch it, run scores. We get walked off, game over on sack fly. The next night, I'm the last guy in the bullpen again. And I come in in the 11th or 12th, 10th, whatever it was. We go extra innings with him again. And don't give anything up in the first inning or two. I don't remember what it was. Then we finally score a few runs. And Sosa again comes up in a spot in whatever inning it was. And Frenchie comes walking out again and says, what do you want to do? Well, at that point, we had a lead by two or three runs. And they said, well, I want to go after him. And that night we got him. That night he, that night he popped up the catcher and we ended up holding on and winning. So back-to-back nights going into extra innings and wriggling, getting walked off the first night, having the place go nuts. And then the next night actually getting the same guy out um, are two of the things that will stand out the most. And then the, maybe your first start. Um, I remember I was out in the bullpen. This is home against, um, uh, gosh darn it. Uh, the White Sox. Yes, the White, White Sox. Sox. And I remember, this is July 19th, 1999. Yeah. And I think Chris Singleton let off. Uh, I don't remember what he did. Um, who hit second? Doesn't matter. But I know that Maglia Ordonez hit third or fourth, and he hit it in the seats, and it was 2 nothing really quick. <laughs> and it was that moment well, before the game. Welcome to the big leagues. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I don't think Frank, I don't think Thomas played that day, which didn't exactly break my heart. But... I was out in the bullpen an hour before the game because I didn't know what to do with myself. And I remember uh, Billy Castro was our bullpen coach. And Billy came walking out in the bullpen. He's like, what are you doing out here? I said, man, I, I don't know where to go. Like, I can't sit in the clubhouse right now because I'm going crazy. So I just thought I'd come out here and hang out for a while. And I just sat and looked at the field for probably 20 minutes before you kind of get stretched out and start going. And, um, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget I'll never forget that year. For whatever reason, that first year stands out at the big league level more than, I, I, not that I was there that much longer, but significantly more than 2001 when I was up for whatever, three or four weeks. Yeah. Let's, uh, y- your story has this, uh, has this incredible um, circle to it that you're, you know, you're back in Omaha after all this time. Um, what, what was childhood like? Where'd you grow up? What was, you know, wh- what'd your folks do? Uh, I grew up in Elkhorn when it was Elkhorn. So, I mean, it was... When it was a small town. Yeah. I mean, there was a Casey's at, at uh, Highway 31 and, and Dodge, and then there was a stop sign at 192nd Dodge, and there was a stop sign at 180th and Dodge. Um, and my parents built a house when, we were, when I was three months old. So, you know, we had vacant lot on one side and vacant lot on the other, and that's where we built the forts and jumped the bikes and got into a few fights, and school was three blocks up the hill. Um, and it was awesome. I mean, there was horses all over, not that we had them. Uh, we'd jump on our bikes and go down to this little pond that we called the duck pond and pull bullheads and carp out of there every once in a while and, and uh, make up games seemingly every night. Uh, my best friend was a kid named Scott Schultz who lived right down the street. Scotty was the same age. We played on the same teams growing up. Uh, I was either at his house or he was at my house seemingly every night the whole time we were growing up. And you kind of knew to be home roughly around dark. But if you weren't home, either set of parents knew where to find the other one for the most part. But it was home run derby, and if you hit it on the second level of the roof, then that's a grand slam. If you hit it on the first, then that's a home run. My dad would inevitably get pissed about two weeks later because there would be so many wiffle balls in the gutters that the minute it would rain, 
water be spilling over the top of the gutters because there was wiffle balls in all of them. So then I'd have to go get the ladder and clean all the gutter, clean all the wiffle balls out, and then we do it all over again. The roof, um, the roof is your house, or yeah. it's a, okay. So we would, I mean, home plate, you'd hit kind of right at the base of the street, and then there was if you hit it on the roof on the first level, then then that was that was a home run. If you hit it on the second level, it was a grand slam. Uh, and if, if nothing else, like if it missed the roof, even if you hit it far enough and missed the roof, it didn't count. Um, and it was all these stupid games you would make up when you were growing up. And yet, you know, 30 years ago, I could still remember all the stuff that we were doing. But uh, younger sisters, three years younger, significantly smarter than I. Um, and, and my parents were, my dad owned a label company. Uh, but it seemed like at every game or practice, he was there. Really? He figured out a way to get there and coached all the way from when I was growing up. He went to Midland, played college baseball at Midland, was kind of a knuckleballer, uh, which I found out later on that the minute he would throw me batting practice, if I finally squared one up, then the knuckleball would come the next pitch because he just couldn't take it that I could square him up at any point in my life. <laughs> um, my mom was a good athlete growing up, and so it, the way that it's told to me that, that I always wanted to be outside, and so she'd grab a glove or ball or whatever it was and go outside with me when when I was growing up so it was the life was a was a cool life because we were outside a ton and um you know it was it felt like a little bit of small town growing up but yet you know you're right on the outskirts of the city so I I wouldn't change the way that I grew up for anything was baseball your thing I mean immediately yeah, and I don't know why. You know, my, my dad, the first major league game that my dad ever went to was in 1957. His dad took him to a Milwaukee Braves game, and he still had the program. So it was Koufax, and he would tell me all these names at the time. They're not Koufax, but uh, oh, I'm blanking on the name. It's Warren Spahn. Um, and so he still had the program. And for whatever reason, we I became a Braves fan, even though, you know, all the things had shifted around. There was now a team in Milwaukee and everything else. And you could basically watch three teams. I mean, you could watch Cubs. the Braves on TBS, you could watch the Cubs Braves. on WGN, or you could watch the Mets on WOR. That was it. So I was a Braves fan. And the Braves at that time, roughly, you know, Bruce Benedict was there about at that same time. And they were bad. I mean, this was way before they were any good. And it was the... Dale Murphy. Dale Murphy, Rafael Ramirez, Bob Horner, Claude L. Washington, uh, yeah, Gene Garber. I mean, they, they, but those were my dudes. Um, and which, I still which is hilarious them. because about that same time the Cubs were actually good. Yeah. So I'm sure everybody in your neighborhood is a Cubs fan. Yeah. And and I was just simply because my dad had randomly gone to a Milwaukee Braves fan in 1957. That seemed to be the best reason to pick a team. Um, was never really a huge Royals fan. I don't know why. So it was Braves were my team when I was growing up, and they might have been the worst team in the league at that time. Or really close. But I do remember when I hit my head on the ceiling of my bedroom, jumping on the bed when Sid Bream slid in. I think it was Sid Bream that slid in. 92. Yeah, it was against the Twins, I think. Oh, you're not talking about the famous Sid Bream slide. You're not talking about the Pirates, the, uh, the NLCS. No, 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 no. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm getting names wrong. I thought it was, who went to the, anyway, somebody, when the, when the Braves finally won. For the first time, and it was some playoff game. I remember my parents had let me have this little tiny TV that I had in my room. I remember jumping up on my bed because I was so fired up, hitting my head on the scene. I was probably 15 or 16 years old, um, and then they got good. So, but that was that was what I felt like. My dad, you know, every Saturday he would play the Lyle Bremser um, record. 
from the 1971 football season. So really? I would wake up every Saturday to a record um, that was in the room right when you walked downstairs that was yelling man, woman, and child and the whole thing, and, and we would go to every game. My grandparents had tickets in the South Stadium for years, and then my dad ended up getting them, so I would go, I mean, every single Husker game I would go down with my dad. And back then, a lot of times you could get on the field after the game, so I'd try to sneak some little football in, and we'd go down on the field afterwards, and um, that's what we did. I mean, I, it, it felt like I didn't miss a game when I was growing up. I was diehard Husker. I could win the when the little media guide would come because he was in the Husker Beef Club or whatever it was. And when the little media guide would come, I would memorize every single number, where they were from, the whole thing. I mean, I can still tell you that Leroy ATN is from New Iberia, Louisiana. Yeah. I have no idea why. I remember that too. Um, so that was it. Like, that, it just. So to answer your question, it wasn't always baseball, but for whatever reason, baseball was more. It, it drew me in a little bit more. Um. You also had CWS tickets. Yeah. And at a time when the CWS, you could basically sit wherever you wanted to, you're spending two weeks at Rosenblatt, right? Yeah. I mean, we were bouncing around. I was, by the time that I got a little bit older, I was playing a fair amount of baseball in the summer. We, we were playing probably more games than we should have, honestly. But um, but whenever I could get there, yeah, I mean, we were, we were there. And it was, you know, stand by the bus after the game and try to get whatever you could get and I got a Wichita State hat one. I think Jim Audley gave me a Wichita State hat one year. and um, You get the random, like a spike after somebody gets knocked out. They just give you one of their shoes and, and still have somewhere in my parents' basement the, you know, a lot of the programs from those years. Um, I remember showing one to Coach Marquis when we were here that he, and I actually think Stotts had signed too from when they were here in like 1988. Um, so... I mean, that was just, you know, I mean, you grow up around here. Like, that's your, if you're a sports guy, it's Husker football in the College World Series, especially at that time. I mean, I think it was a little bit different. You just, that's what you did. You didn't really think twice about it. Did you envision doing that someday? Did you have that, did you have that dream? Did you think that that was possible? I don't ever really remember, and, um, it, like, it wasn't a stated goal or anything. I, I, I guess, um, when I got to Stanford, I was naive enough to think. So I've been married for 18 and a half years. I met my wife when I was 14 at Lake Okoboji in the middle of the summer. Really? Um, and when I left to go to Stanford, she was going to Iowa State. It's not we, we saw each other in the summer, but it wasn't like we were really dating. And... That summer, I said, if we make the College World Series my freshman year, you have to come to Omaha. I had no idea what I was saying. I hadn't even been on campus yet. Well, we made it. So she had to show up. Um, and I honestly think that if that hadn't have happened, I don't know if we would have started dating and then ultimately stayed dating all the way through college and got married. Um, you guilt-tripped her to come to I Omaha. I did. Then at that point, she had no choice. She had to show up. Um, so, yeah, it was... I, I think once I got on campus, it was, I guess, you know, it had been a little bit of a lean period the previous few years for Stanford, but there was still an understanding that when you got there, the expectation was you're going to end up here. Um, and so more by osmosis, I think, when I got there. And then as the season went on, you started to figure out, okay, you actually can compete with most of these guys. Um, but still, I, I, I'll never, I mean, it still hangs there. I mean, that was the first game 
first game that we lined up and played was against Fullerton, who we had already played that year, and, and I will never forget that. You're, pu- you're pu- pointing to a framed photo on your on your office wall. Yeah. Uh, let's back up just a little okay. bit. Uh, I, I don't want to jump ahead too quick. You, you, um, you went to prep, uh, and you weren't like a big time pitcher growing up, right? You mm-hmm. kind of stumbled into it in high school. Yeah, I mean, I was when I was really. I mean, you were just a ball player, right? Yeah, yeah. and I, I wasn't that big. I mean, I grew a little bit later. Um, you know, when I was in seventh and eighth grade, I was the, the kid that was a guard on the basketball team, but had too big a feet and wasn't very quick. And so, um, and then my freshman year, I don't know, I grew like six inches, and, and I, I wasn't. I mean, on the teams that I played on when I was twelve and thirteen and fourteen years old, I definitely wasn't one of the better guys, and I didn't pitch that much. Um, and then, and it's not like I went out and trained and did all these things. I just started throwing harder. And I was lucky because Mike, I, I, from the time I was 10 years old until I was 14, Mike Evans was one of our coaches. And Mike, at the time, was a pitching coach in Nebraska, ended up being the head coach of Bellevue. And so between he and my dad, I had a, a really, really good baseball knowledge base at a really young age. Mike taught me how to throw a changeup when I was 10 years old. It wasn't no, like nobody else was doing that. Well, the changeup ended up honestly being one of the biggest reasons that I pitched for as long as I did. Um, and so I, I think I had the basis of it, but I just didn't have the talent until, I don't know, I guess maybe my sophomore year in high school, and then arms started changing and body started changing a little bit and started throwing a little bit harder, and now you're a pitcher. Um, and that, which was good because I couldn't hit and I couldn't run. So <laughs> if that wouldn't have worked, it would have been something else. You won a state championship at Rosenblatt mm-hmm. as a junior. Uh, lost it as a senior at Rosenblatt. Uh, who would have thunk that you'd be back a year later? I mean, there's that had to be a thrill, though, winning it at prep at Rosenblatt. Yeah, it was awesome. I think we'd be Miller North because I think Miller North had Todd Doxon. Uh, and we ended up, I don't remember, we, I think we scored one in the last inning or two in the last inning. And, and I, I, I do know I got on base in the last inning. I don't remember if I got a hit or if I walked, but I also know that I was pinch run for. Um, <laughs> and somebody ended up scoring. I think Steve Sinowicki ended up scoring, and we win that year. And then the next year I pitch against Westside, and we get beat. And actually, the guy that beats me in the state tournament the next year is Brian Fierna, who ends up going to Stanford. Um, and at the time, I didn't really know Brian. Tony Schrager was on that same team that I ended up playing with with Tony at Stanford a few years later too. You, uh, your recruiting story is really interesting to me because this is this these are the old days. I mean, there's no there's no baseball showcases. Uh, there's no internet. There's it's hard for schools, big time schools, to know that Kyle Peterson exists. So you're. You're kind of going to some camps in the summer, right? Yeah. But but the other thing is, you're just like sending out, you're sending out letters. Uh, you're basically advertising yourself. You had to. I mean, there there wasn't the only thing that really existed was the the Olympic festival, and the Olympic festival was sixty four guys. Uh, there wasn't, you know, the area codes were starting to exist, but it was literally just the area codes in California, and it was a smaller deal. It wasn't anything like it was now. And so you had to recruit yourself if you wanted to go somewhere other nationally. It wasn't like I was locked in on playing somewhere else, but I wanted to see if maybe other people would be interested. So we wrote the letter that had everything on it, and I would send them out. But then ultimately, um, and I've since paid them back, but I figured out what the long-distance code was at prep. (laughs) 
And so I would, in my off period, I would go into the training room and I would call all of these schools. Um, and I remember a few weeks later there was. What a, are you saying, Kyle? I'm just trying to figure out whether there's any interest, or you know, how how would they potentially be interested in a guy from Nebraska? And what do I need to do? And and so I remember a few weeks later there was this printed list that was outside of the the teachers' lounge that said who made these calls, <laughs> and it was like Fayetteville, North Carolina, or, or Fayetteville, Arkansas, Austin, Texas. Stillwater, Oklahoma. I mean, everybody that I had called, it was on there, and it was all these highlighted things, and it was basically asking the teachers, like, "Hey, somebody used a code, and nobody, we can't figure out who this is." What it was? No, I didn't tell them that. No, somebody smart should have figured it yeah. out, you know, yeah. based on. <laughs> they didn't. So you didn't uh, tell them, though. I didn't tell them that. Hell no, no. I, I, I was afraid to get kicked out or something, but um, yeah, and I, I, I think ultimately, oh, I know ultimately that you know I paid them the seven bucks or whatever it was supposed to be back, but. Yeah, so you had to. I mean, there, there was it was either that or you, you're kind of at the whim of whoever calls you, and I guess I wasn't really comfortable with that. Uh, I don't want to neglect the basketball thing because you want a state championship. <laughs> you want a state championship in basketball. Well, I was on a team. Othello Meadows, yeah. TJ Pugh, yeah. Tim Ritter. Yeah. Uh, that was a great team. They're good, yeah. I mean, all five of our starters played Division One athletics. So Eric Lordson was a point guard, played at Creighton, then went down and played a year at TCU baseball-wise. Ben Fogarty. Uh, played at Creighton for two years and played at Wichita Baseball. Othello and TJ obviously went and played. Othello went to East Carolina. TJ went to KU. And Ritter ends up going to Notre Dame and playing in the NFL a little bit. And you you didn't start, and you also, I mean, obviously. I, yeah, and Pete Coniglio played football at UNO. Vince Petro was on that team, played baseball at Creighton. I mean, it was, I didn't play. I mean, I was not, I was a power guard, which which <laughs> really didn't have much of a home. And, and I could shoot a little bit, but I couldn't do anything else. You were a leader, Kyle. What what I was was I was I was I was the guy that had to guard Pew and Ritter every day in practice. Okay. And that was probably the most humbling experience that I've ever had in my life. But it was a blast. I, I enjoyed that as much as anything else athletically in high school and um, I didn't play a whole lot and I should have played a whole lot, but it was it was fun to sit there and watch a lot of it. Back to baseball. You you did not get drafted. Hmm. Which is that surprised me. I mean this this was a lot of kids get drafted, even from, I mean, even from Omaha, Nebraska, kids get drafted. Uh, were, were you surprised by that? Yeah, I mean, I sat by the phone for three days, um, and I, I didn't, I didn't have any intent of going and signing with anybody. But the idea, like the year before, I think there was six or seven high school guys out of out of Omaha that were drafted, and that year I don't think there were any. Um, so, I guy from the Cubs had said, you know what, if you're around the fourth or fifth round, then, then you know, we're, we're probably going to take you at that point. And I sit the first day and the phone doesn't ring, and I sit the second day and the phone doesn't ring, and I sit the third day and the phone doesn't ring, and that's it. Um, so I was pissed, and I wasn't pissed because I was going to sign. I was pissed because from an ego standpoint, I wanted to say I got drafted. Um, and I got hurt towards the end. My back was bothering me towards the end of the year, and that could have played some factor in it. Or... You know, the fact that, that I was going to go to school unless it was something insane and, and I wasn't good enough to get something insane at that time. So And everybody knew, I mean, everybody knew you were going to Stanford, yeah. probably. Yeah, yeah. And that's always, you know, from a scout standpoint, one of the first questions they ask is, what's the amount and how committed are you to college? And, and you know, in retrospect, it, it would have been the biggest mistake, I think, 
for me if I would have been drafted high enough to actually have to make some financial decision about it because in no way was I ready to go play pro ball. But I still would have liked to say I got drafted when I was in high school. Stanford uh, did not recruit a lot of kids from Omaha or even the Midwest. Mm-hmm. How the heck did they find you? I mean, I've, I've heard your pitching coach allude to the story, but uh, but it was it was sort of unusual to for for Kyle Peterson and Stanford to get together, right? Yeah, I I, um, I called him <laughs> um, and sent him the letter, and and Dean Stotts had got back to me and said the pitching you know coach. Yeah, so at the time Dean Stotts was a pitching coach. Stotts got back to me and said, "There's a scout in Oklahoma that we really trust. It's a guy named Stan Meek, and Stan runs a camp. Why don't you go down to Stan's camp?" So Stan ran a camp at Oklahoma City University, and my dad and I went down there, and I threw in front of Stan, and I think Stan made a phone call out to Stanford and said, hey, you at least ought to take a look, and then I went to Stanford's camp, and and Stanford's camp at that time, I think when I was there that year, I think there was like five guys that ended up playing the big leagues. I mean, Eric Burns was there, Troy Gloss was there, both of them ended up going to UCLA. Uh, there was a few of stats that told me, I think four or five guys that played in the big leagues, and I didn't know any of them. I mean, didn't know a soul when I showed up. And I left there not really knowing whether they had any interest at all. And Stotts would later tell me that, that somebody, a guy that was a buddy of his that was a coach who didn't know me from Adam, just when I was out there said something to Stotts. And Stotts saw it, and, and, and I guess what I would later find out is the only reason that he came in and made an in-home visit is because he was going to see somebody else in Kansas or Oklahoma, I don't remember where it was, and and they canceled, and he already had the ticket. So he flew to see them and had an extra day and drove up to see us and sat in the living room and said, it was the strangest recruiting pitch I've ever heard in my life. He, he <laughs> said, you know, I don't know if you ever play for us. I don't know if you're good enough. Um, our place is really competitive. We don't guarantee anything to anybody. But if you want to give it a run, we're in. Um, and I signed for 10%. And I had filled out, my, to this day, I thought my dad was going to kill me. Part of the questionnaire for Stanford was, if you don't receive financial aid, can your parents afford it? Well, I never asked my parents. I just checked yes. <laughs> well, the thing that Stotts does when he recruited was, part of it was, okay, financially, because there's only 11.7 scholarships. So if you can get some more that can afford more of it and some that can't, then more of the money goes to those that can't. And I remember my dad looked at me and he said, well, I don't I don't remember filling that. I said, well, yeah, I, I did. I, I, I filled that out. Stats says, you know, that's one of the reasons that I'm here is we need this mix. And my dad kind of looked at me like, what the hell are you doing? If you would have said no, he wouldn't have been there. I don't know that he would have. I, th- I think he may be right. So, yeah, sometimes it works out strange. And we, a few other guys sign out of that class, so they ended up bumping me a little bit up the first year, and then we're, we're great the next two years. Um, but you're right. If I don't check yes, I don't know if, I don't know if he ever shows up. He doesn't? soothe your ego at all when he comes into your house. Why did that appeal to you? Because I wanted to prove him wrong. I mean, it was... I, I, I remember, and I don't know why, but the one thing when I was growing up, aside from certain names that Jack Payne would say, but the one thing that I remember at the College World Series is when Paul Carey hit a home run in 1987 off of Ben McDonald. And I don't know why. Um... Paul Carey was a freshman, hit an opposite field home run. Stanford wins a national championship. I had no draw to Stanford University before that at all. I had no reason why that should stick out of my mind. But it did. And so I didn't even know where it was. But that's where I wanted to go. 
And then when I showed up the first time and I did know where it was, then I really wanted to go there because it looked like something that I had never seen before in my life. So just the opportunity. Um, I remember I was working out at Prairie Life because the first day that coaches could call you was July 1st before your senior year. They couldn't call you before that. And I was working out at Prairie Life and nobody had cell phones, obviously. And my dad came and found me on July 1st. I could still probably walk you to roughly the same spot within Prairie on 132nd and said, Coach Stotts from Stanford just called. And it was like that moment where you're like, God, they're actually, maybe they actually are interested. Um, so I, I think the challenge was a piece of it. The I, I had wanted to go there for whatever reason, had wanted to go there was, was a piece of it. And obviously they had had a lot of success. Um, I didn't understand the academic piece of it. I knew that it was a good school. I had no idea about the other things associated with it or ultimately the benefits that could come afterwards. I just thought it was pretty cool that it was in California, they were good at baseball, and they actually wanted to talk to me. What was the uh, what was the transition like? I mean, you had a sister who, your sister eventually went to Stanford, mm-hmm. right? But she was younger. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was the transition like to Stanford University? Because, I mean... That's got to be some culture shock. I mean, I, I recognize the the prestige of Creighton Prep, but this is another world. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, this this town, it, it's um, it's a wonderful place to grow up, but it's also really sheltered. Or I guess my life was pretty sheltered, and I didn't realize how sheltered it was until I got out there. Um, you know, the 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 floor was a co-ed floor. Um, the you know, we, we had two people in our dorm that were gay. Um, RRA was gay. Stuff that I just, I hadn't really been around. And so it was all of this newness, and you're in a new place, and Stanford's incredibly liberal, and, and I wasn't. Um, and it was the greatest thing in the world because you're 1,500 miles away from home. You're forced to see all of the, the, the realities of what life is, as opposed to what you thought it was for this sheltered life the first 18 years growing up here. Um, and it was uncomfortable for a little bit just because I hadn't been around it. It wasn't uncomfortable because I disagreed with anything. It was more just I hadn't seen it. Um, but it was awesome because it was just all this every day was something that I just hadn't really experienced or been around. And then I had the baseball component that was kind of the thing that I was used to. And so you, you knew that there was always the one thing that you could go to that was I don't know, comfortable. Um, and I, I really didn't know anybody when I showed up. I mean, Fred Savage was in our freshman dorm. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, I ended up, Fred, we went to the Jimmy Buffett concert my freshman year, and, and you know, Fred figures out a way to get a keg, and there's a keg in the bay. It, it just, life started going at a different speed than I knew life could go. We're talking about the Wonder uh, Years story. Yeah, so Wonder Years, Fred, so he was a really good dude. I haven't talked to him since college. Probably wouldn't he, he probably wouldn't remember that day, but, I mean, Tiger's the same year. So, I mean, my sophomore year, Tiger lives two doors down, and, and you knew with Tiger it was something different. But just the people that you were surrounded by, my freshman year. Hold on, don't stop there. What, what, do, you remember, what do you remember about Tiger Woods? Uh, sophomore year, he drove like a Datsun 240. I mean, I remember, and and he would go out. I remember one time because we lived right by the driving range, and intentionally, because then we would sneak on the driving range and hit balls. But I remember one night, multiple nights actually, 
he would pull his car up to the point they could turn the lights on, and he'd be banging balls at like ten thirty at night. Um, and Tiger was, I mean, I, it's not like I knew Tiger incredibly well, but we ate in the same place the whole year, and so you talked to him a little bit. And I do remember the one time, it was late in our sophomore year, that Tiger came walking back from the dining hall, all decked out in Oakley. I mean, he had like the, the shades and the hat and the shirt, and I looked at my buddy, I'm like, he's gone. And it was like a week later that it was the hello world thing, and off he went, and he was gone. Um my freshman year, I remember these two guys walking through the dorm, and they're like, hey, we started this thing called a search engine, and <laughs> we'll give you $5 if you can find a website that isn't on our search engine. Well, it was the two dudes that started Yahoo. They were just rolling through because they were Stanford guys, and, and the guy that lived two doors down from me was like a sixth guy at Google. It was when all this stuff was going on that... Yeah, this is, this is the beginning of Silicon Valley and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, the Apple stuff had already gone, and HP was up and going crazy. But but a lot of the stuff that we see now, the Googles and Yahoos and whatever else, was literally just getting started. Um, and, if, I mean, if there was one regret that I had <laughs> is if you could have just had a little inkling as to what was potentially going on. And the baseball thing was cool, but... To be the sixth guy at Google would have been okay also. Yeah, um, it's it's an odd experience because typically, you know, the first-round draft pick in baseball is the one that everybody is is yeah. wanting to be. And it turns out, you know, you were like the poor guy on yeah. the block. Yeah, it's like not even close. I mean, it's just the, the, yeah, <laughs> some of the others that, that were that, that same year. And that was the cool part about it is, like, you roll in thinking you're pretty good at what you do. And then you kind of look up and down the hall and you're like, oh, well, <laughs> we got a little work to do. And you just, it, it was, you were surrounded, continually surrounded by people that were really, really good at something, whatever the something was. Yeah. Um, you know, mine happened to be, I could throw a ball. Like, it was pretty minute compared to what a lot of the other ones were pretty good at. But hey, it was all, an awesome all, experience. All Tiger could do is hit a ball. What's the, you know, there's no, true. no difference there. No, that's true. Yeah. Uh, freshman year, 1995, you end up. You know, you end up throwing ten complete games. I mean, it's fourteen and one, two nine six ERA. Your freshman of the year in the country. Um, two complete games in the regional. What happened? I don't know. It, it was like a bubble. I mean, I, I don't. I didn't realize until the following year how difficult it actually was at that level. And I think part of it was I did some things that not that many other people did at the time. I threw a ton of changeups. And I didn't really have an ego when it came to what I did when I was out there because I didn't throw hard enough to have an ego. And so it wasn't like I was trying to throw it by guys. Um, there'd be times I'd throw four, five, six change-ups in a row. And not that many people did that. And so, you know, there wasn't a ton of film at the time, and it wasn't like you could go have these extensive, detailed scouting reports on people. Um, so I had a good run. And, and I kind of just kept doing it the whole year, and, and I, I, didn't, I didn't really think much of it. It was funny, I was talking to Alex Lang at LSU about this a few weeks ago. Because Lang has this incredible freshman year at LSU and then starts scuffling a little bit afterwards. And, and it's, I think you, if you could stay in that bubble, it might have kept going. Not necessarily that wins, because you don't control that piece of it, but at least the, 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 the potential to get wins in the way that, that that year went. Ignorance is your friend. Absolutely, and I had no idea. But the first game of my sophomore year, we went out and played in Hawaii. I'd never been to Hawaii. I was all excited to go. Mark Johnson, I think it was Mark Johnson's pitching for Hawaii, who that year would, I think, ultimately make the Olympic team. And I get bombed. I mean, I think I went three innings or 
two and a third or something like that. And not that Hawaii was some national powerhouse. And I remember getting done. I'm like, this never happened at this level because there wasn't any. I mean, even the one game that I lost that year, I think it was like a to Sac State or somebody like that in a midweek game. Um, there just wasn't that much adversity. There was close games, but it wasn't those games where you're like, I just got hammered. Um, and then we go home the second game, and, and we put lights in for the first time. Second season. Second season. Yeah, second season. And pitch against Fullerton, and I got no hitter with two outs in the seventh inning. Your first start of the year. Second. First start second. of the year, I got Bob against Hawaii. Second start is our first the first time that we had had lights at Stanford. So okay. the place is packed. Fullerton's, Fullerton's number, number one. one. They yeah. just won a national championship. Katsai's still there. Uh, maybe what? He might have left. Uh, but they were number one. Uh, and I give up a hit with two outs in the seventh inning. I shake off Stotts. He calls a changeup. I shake him off and throw a fastball because I'm all excited. I think I could throw it by the nine-hole guy. I mean, absolute hit, line drive to center field, ends a no-hitter, takes me out. Stotts comes up. He's like, what are you doing? I said, I thought I could throw it by him. I thought I could throw it by him. And he'll never let me forget that. <laughs> um, and Hunt- Chad Hutchinson comes in the next, the next inning and finishes it. Then a few weeks later, we go down to Arizona State and give up seven runs in the first inning. Like, all these different things. So I just didn't. It wasn't hard the first year, as stupid as that sounds, because I made it as simple as I could. I was pretty much fastball changeup, um, and I wasn't forced to make a lot of adjustments during the course of the year. The second year, the third year, really every time after that in my whole pitching life, I was forced to make adjustments because other people were making adjustments against me. But it was like this strange year where it didn't matter what happened, it worked. Um, it was never like that again for that extended period of time. But, man, it was a lot of fun for five months. In the regional, you threw, like I said, you threw two complete games, what, like three days apart or something like that? Yeah. Because you guys had to come back through the loser's bracket. Uh, that had to be yeah. that had to be a, <laughs> that had to be pretty amazing, especially knowing the carrot at the end of the, you know, at the end of that regional. We played, I remember we played Arkansas first, and we beat Arkansas, and then we get beat Texas Tech was the one seed. It was the old six-team regional days, and it was in Wichita, and it poured. So, I don't remember we played second. We avoided Wichita on the deal. I think we played Texas Tech, then we had to fight all the way back through. We ended up fighting the way back through. We're going to play Texas Tech on a Monday. We're the only team playing. In fact, it might have been Tuesday. We're the only team playing. Everything else had ended, and it had rained there. It rained a full day out. So, we're the, we're the last one to figure out who goes to Omaha. So I start the game against Texas Tech, and I give up a few runs early, and we're down, and I remember, I, I just, my arm was bugging me a little bit, and I didn't feel great, and I was going to tell Stotts that I was done. And there was no bathroom in the dugout. The bathroom at the time was all the way down the right field line. And so Stotts had gone to the bathroom in between innings, and I couldn't find him. It was a quick inning, and by the time the inning ended, he was back, and so I just grabbed my glove and went back out there, Got out of the next inning and never went and talked to him. Um, you know, and as kind of all these stupid little things in life happen, if he had been standing there when I walked in there, I might have been done. Because mentally at the time, I was done. Just everything right. hurt. Um, and then we end up scratching a few across. And I think we beat him by a run and, and dogpiled in Wichita and showed up here a few days later and faced Fuller in the first game. Uh, so, yeah, it was... Uh, that whole year was my favorite year that I've ever had in baseball, by far. And you pitched here during the CWS. Yeah. What was yeah. that like? 
It was cool. I mean, it, it was, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier. I mean, I'd been on that field the year before and got beat in the first game of, of the state tournament. Didn't throw very well. And now, like a year later, you know, we're facing Clemson elimination game. We're trying to stay alive in the College World Series. And, and I remember Shane Monahan was the leadoff hitter for Clemson. And we had enough information on Clemson that Monahan swung at the first pitch of the game a ton. And Monahan, I think it was a sandwich picker, second round pick that, that year of the Mariners. And so AJ Hamch was the catcher. And I remember talking to AJ before the game. I said, We're going to throw a change up the first pitch of the game. I'd never done it before in my life. But in my mind, I thought Monahan's going to swing at the first pitch, and if Monahan puts one of the seats in this one nothing right away, this thing could spin out of control. And you'd be embarrassed, by the way. Ex- yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I throw a first pitch change up. Monahan swings over the top of it and misses. And I'll never forget, he turned around and looked at AJ like, what the hell was that? And it was like this immediate shot of confidence that, okay, now we're all right. Um, and they ended up. I mean, they, they, I don't remember what the final score was, but I know that they hit a ball in the seats, and I know they scored three or four runs. Um, but we stayed alive, and we hit a few balls in the seats, and, and uh, it was it was five months of looking back on it, basically being inside a bubble. You remember yeah. Jack Payne saying your name. Always. That, that picture. I mean, it's it's because I, I had heard him say, and I've told Jack this, I had heard him say so many names growing up, and we would imitate Jack on the bench at prep. And we would come up with these BS lineups and make up with our favorite names over the years. So it was Brooks Kieschnick and Brad Beanblossom and Monty Ferris and Nick Avillian, uh, who was the Odeby McDowell and all these guys that he had said over the years that, that we would come up with these fictitious made-up lineups that me and Fogarty would sit on the bench in high school and just commentate because that's kind of what you did. I mean, you had time to kill and yeah. we were the morons on the bench that were doing it. So when he actually said my name, it, it 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 honestly like even maybe more than the times we were on the field, I, I it was like that time of that I had been waiting for, that I had looked forward to, just because that was the voice that I grew up with. Um, two years later, you're back, and you're you're out in the outfield during Stanford's batting practice at Rosenblatt mm-hmm. when. You hear kind of a roar, uh, and somebody runs out and tells you you're the 13th pick of the Milwaukee Brewers. What do you yeah. remember? About, what do you remember about that? Um, so Scott Lakem was our SID, and somebody had—I think the Brewers had called Scott. So it wasn't nearly as publicized as it is now, and guys going to New York and everything else. And Scott ran out. I was doing the bucket, um, so I was out behind second base doing the bucket at batting practice, and he came out and said Milwaukee just took it with the 13th pick and I remember running back in and a bunch of the parents were always already there watching batting practice and they're all going crazy and my parents are going crazy and it was cool because the Brewers had called me the night before and said if you're there at 13 we're going to take you at 13 but I don't know I mean you never really have any idea until it's official so um, and I had got hammered a few days earlier by LSU and, and so there's always that thought at that time of, well, hell, now nobody's going to draft me. Well, they, they just watch what I just watch. There's no reason that they would draft me. Um, so it was awesome. I mean, my, now my wife, but, but then my girlfriend was, was there, and um, family was there. And, and her family, she grew up going to Brewers games. Her whole, she grew up in Nina, Wisconsin, and, and her whole family were Brewers fans, and so they were all geeked up. Yeah, it was, 
it was a cool place to hear the news. I know that. You got through the minors pretty quick. Um, and how? Why? Um, I think some of the same reasons I had so much success my freshman year. I mean, it was, I could throw a lot of strikes. I could throw a changeup whenever I wanted to. And honestly, from a Milwaukee standpoint, I think that they wanted to push me up through the system as fast as they possibly could because of the investment. And, um, you know, there wasn't, you draft some guys, you put them in the minor leagues, and there's a lot of things that they need to fine-tune. And usually it's guys that threw a lot harder than I did. I could throw a lot of strikes. Um, and so I, I think it was easier to kind of push me through the system a little bit faster. And, yeah, I mean, you, you, it was whatever it was, the middle of July in, in 99. What's interesting is, is it was – so I found out – I played in the Futures game in Fenway. First pitch I threw – Soriano hit over the Green Monster. Really? Yeah. Very first pitch. I remember there's this skinny kid coming up with this huge bat. <laughs> and I I had just come out of the bullpen because, you know, we're pit, everybody's pitching a few outs to get a bunch of people. It was the first Futures game. And so I didn't know who the guy was, and, and he's holding this massive bat. And I'm like, there's no way this little dude swinging this big bat can get around on a fastball and on his hands. So I threw a two-seam two fastball in on his hands. And the very first pitch, he hits it onto the parking garage over the Green Monster. <laughs> And I remember standing there going, what the hell was that? Like, it never even entered my mind. And then Rubio Durazo hit right after him. Durazo hit a ground ball to shortstop, and that was it. I faced two guys, and he was over, and that was it. I flew straight from there to New Orleans for the AAA All-Star game. And I had a computer, I remember. And I had checked. Every once in a while, I would check the Milwaukee newspaper. And I checked the Milwaukee newspaper randomly, and it showed the starters for the next five days. And I was starting the fifth day. Well, no one had told me that I was going to the major leagues. Oh, really? So I called my agent and said, hey, is there anything that I'm supposed to know here? Because in the Milwaukee paper, it shows that I'm pitching against the White Sox in six days. And he's like, well, you're not supposed to know this. So you're going to go back to, to Louisville, and you're going to act surprised when they tell you that you're going to the big leagues. <laughs> So we go back to Louisville. and It's Gary, like finding your Christmas present two yeah, weeks before Christmas. Yeah, and, 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 yeah. And, and then it's like, you know, you're all like, I can't call anybody. And I, I called my parents and gave them a heads up. And I think this is happening, but I really didn't call anybody else. And so we go back to Louisville, and, and uh, Gary Allenson was our manager. And Muxie calls me. I go to the ballpark and get dressed. And so in my mind, I'm like, they lied. There's no way. Like, it's not happening. And Muggsy calls me in before we go out to BP and tells me. And, uh, yeah, and then I, I act surprised, and then we could actually head to Milwaukee. But, yeah, I, I had to be one of the first, maybe the only guy to figure out he's going to the big leagues by finding the newspaper a week before it actually happened. Especially in 1999 yeah. with, with the Internet access. Yeah. Um, when did you? When did it start to go wrong a little bit? Because 99, you were up and down. Um you, you had a pretty good final couple weeks, uh, if I remember right. You were starting. And then 2000, you have shoulder surgery. Like, when did you, when did it start to, when did you start to wonder? Um, you know, when I was in Louisville that year, my shoulder was bothering me one day throwing the bullpen. And I remember I said something to one of my coaches. He said, man, it just doesn't feel right. He goes, it's up to you, but don't say anything because you're the next guy to go up. Well, I'm not gonna say anything. I mean, at that point, you've never been in the big leagues. It's the only thing. You're so you you recognized that 
in July of 99 before you got called up. Yeah, yeah, it was June, May, June. I don't know exactly when it was, but it was somewhere. It was bothering me a little bit. And and really throughout that season, I mean, some days it would bother me a little bit, some days it wouldn't. But I always, I mean, my back bothered me a lot when I pitched. And, and I, I never, very rarely did I go out just ever and feel like everything feels awesome. And so I just didn't really pay any attention to it. You went out and you pitched and you got done and worked out and you went out and did it five or six days later. So go through the season and start playing catch the next year before the season and something just doesn't feel right. And so I think they did surgery maybe in February. Um, and they shrunk my shoulder capsule. Um, and I don't even think they do the surgery anymore. I think it was one, it wasn't necessarily experimental, but shoulder was too loose, they did it. Um, end up the DL the whole year. The next year, you know, get called up three or four different times, but never really felt right. And that year, actually, in 2001, I mean, hell, I, I mean, I was popping Viking the whole year. Really? Um, just because it hurt right at the beginning, and I was on the same deal. Like, you know, got to don't worry about it, it's tendonitis talk. Um, but you're the guy that if somebody gets hurt, you're going to go up. And so, you know, you're not going to go on the DL and AAA. I mean, that's the worst place in the world to possibly go on, on the DL. Um, and end up pitching the rest of the year until we got to the end of the year. And finally, I, my numbers were horrible in AAA. And finally, I just told our pitching coach about two weeks before the season, and I said, man, I can't, I can't lift my arm. Um, so the same thing, I get the tendonitis deal. They look at it again in the spring and figure out that it's, at that time, it was a torn labrum. Uh, and then there was a cuff deal later on that year, and then that was it. I mean, I was a right-hander. I go to spring training in 2003, I'm right-handed throwing 81 miles an hour. Wow. And I felt good. Like, that was the worst part. Like, I actually felt good. And I remember I was throwing a double-A game, and I learned how to throw a cutter because I had him. And at that point, like, you turn into Eddie Harris from Major League. <laughs> you got anything you can. you got to figure out a way to make the ball move. And we had a, a Dominican kid that was doing the chart in the double-A game in spring training, and he came up to me after the game with this look on his face. Like, he was so confused. And he looked at me, and he looked at the chart, and he looked at me, and he looked at the chart, and he goes, did, did you throw any fastballs? Wow. And the highest pitch I'd thrown was 79 miles an hour. And I got, I mean, I went two or three innings and didn't give up any runs, but, um, so that was it. Like, it wasn't, I would have released me. I mean, there, there was no future at that point. Um, but still, and I, I've told the story before, but the, the, you know, cuts in the minor leagues at that time were made on Mondays, because that's when they gave meal money out. And they weren't going to give you meal money for the whole week if they were going to cut you. And there was a guy by the door who was our clubby in, uh, in Indianapolis, actually, in AAA. And he had a clipboard. And if you got by him, you were fine. But I didn't. And I knew, I, I sat outside that day and I called my dad before I went inside. And I said, you know what? I think I'm getting released. And we talked for probably 20, 25 minutes just about growing up and the game and all the stuff that we had been through and, and all the time that we had spent at the field. And sure enough, went in and, and you know, said, whatever the guy's name was that was director of minor leagues and he's to see and so you go down to his office and there's there's three chairs sitting outside of his office and there's three guys sitting in there sitting in chairs already so I'm standing there for a minute and everybody's there for the same damn reason and they're not calling you down there because they can't tell you how great you are and so I walk in and he says you know what we made a decision that you know it's you're not in the future plans of the organization we're going to release you today and thanks that's it so nobody had gone on the field yet that day for spring training um, 
and I couldn't go back in the clubhouse. I lost it. And I went out in the car and just sat there and bawled for like 15 minutes. And I wasn't, it wasn't that I was mad because I knew that I shouldn't, I knew that I shouldn't be playing. Um, it was that realization of that's it. Like it doesn't matter what I do. It's, I'm not good enough to play anymore. And there was never a time in my life other than one start against LSU that I hate to admit in the College World Series, not the second one, but the first one, to where I doubted what I was doing when I got to that level uh, or didn't think I was good enough. At that point, I knew I wasn't good enough, and it was that realization of, that's it. Um, so I waited for everybody to get out of there because I didn't want to face them with tears rolling down my eyes. And I went into the clubhouse and, and found a trainer and gave him a hug real quick and threw all my shit in the bag and went home. Uh, and that was it called Jim Henry. I had my agent called Jim. Jim was the GM at the Cubs. Jim said, you know, I mean, kind of threw my agent, like the reports aren't very good. Um, we got a spot in double A if you want to go to double A. And in my mind was still trying to trick myself into maybe, maybe, maybe. So we had moved back to Minneapolis. My wife had taken a job, taken a job at Smith Barney. And it was about a month later, I remember waking up and looking in the mirror. And there was really that look in the mirror moment where you're like, that's it. It was time to do something else. Um, it end, it ends pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, how did you deal with it? Like, how does a you're 27 years old? You're supposed to be sort of in the prime of your pitching career, and you can't throw the ball 80 miles an hour. Like, yeah. How, how did you How did you handle that? Um. You know, I don't know. I, I, I there's the there's the moment of I would say there's the moment of clarity when you realize you really can't. And I think it took getting to that point. It existed when I was outside of the clubhouse. I tricked myself for another five or six weeks, and it existed again finally when I was in my in-laws' house, actually. Um, and I guess ultimately I was okay with it. I mean, I, I think it would have been harder if I thought I could still play. And if I thought I could still get guys out and I wasn't getting an opportunity, I think it would have driven me nuts and I would have gone and tried to play somewhere else. But ultimately, I knew that I could I get guys out in Double A. I don't know, probably, but that wasn't really the point. I mean, if, if if you couldn't get guys out at the at the highest level, that at some point I could get guys out. It it, it was time to go do something else. Um, so I had my agent call ESPN on a whim. They were doing Super Regionals that year for the first time. It was all on pay per view. I had taken a job to work on the bond floor of uh, Piper Jaffrey in Minneapolis. I didn't know anything about it, but it sounded really cool. And a guy gave me an opportunity and happened to be right at the same time the Super Regional started. So asked him if I could wait a week. Went out to Super Regionals, actually at Stanford. It was Stanford against Long Beach. Long Beach had uh, Jared Weaver at the time. Thought I was going to do it for three days and come back and trade bonds. And that was 15 years ago. Um, so it, it, it was... It was cool because it allowed me to stay in the game, but I do remember the first time, because I did some major league games that year, and the first time I went and did a major league game, I hated it. Really? I just wasn't ready. College was different because I was enough removed from it, but I hated walking back into a big league. I hadn't watched any games. I hadn't done anything. Um, I just wasn't, even though I knew it was done, I wasn't. I didn't want it to be done. And, and being in that environment the first time, after that I was okay. But being in that environment the first time sucked. 
One of the hard parts about that, I think, and I've talked to other guys about this, you know, like Trev Alberts, for instance. Um, you know, there's a Kyle Peterson's a bust. You know, Kyle Peterson mm-hmm. didn't work out. Uh, that when you when you grow up your whole life and you're successful and you're pitching in Rosenblatt as a freshman and your first round draft pick and you know, boom, 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 and then all of a sudden, you know, people are saying, "Oh man, that guy was a bust." Yeah, I, that's it's pretty unfair. It's crazy. We would laugh about it in the minor leagues. You you go from prospect to suspect pretty quick, and it's a. I mean, the business is a pretty straightforward business. The one thing that I never understood is the guys in AAA that, that just uniformly would tell everybody how much they were getting screwed. Like, bro, you got like a four and a half ERA in AAA. Like, ultimately, the whole point of the major leagues is to win. And if you're good enough to help them win, or somebody else you're going to get a chance at some point. And if you're not good enough, you're probably not going to get a chance. And it's just the way it works. I mean, it's the ultimate... Meritocracy. Absolutely. Um, and so I think, you know, that piece of it was... It was sobering, but it's also... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty clear deal. You're either good enough or you're not good enough. When you turn not good enough and... For the most of your life, everybody's been telling you how good you are. Yeah, it sucks. I mean, it's, you know, the, the I remember when Milwaukee changed their uniforms. They flew my wife and I up because they, they wanted to show the uniforms off. And it was, I think, right after my rookie year. And I remember <clears throat> thinking when you go up there and the first time you go to the big leagues, like, I'm going to be here 15 years and... I'm going to win 150, 200 games, and this is going to be the greatest thing in the world, and we're going to have three kids and a dog, and it's the way it's going to work. It just doesn't work that way for 99% of the people, but I got to see some really cool stuff. And, yes, it sucked not being good anymore because that's what it was. I wasn't good anymore. You know what sucked, though, is <laughs> and I'm, what, what must have sucked Injuries are, are injuries are a huge part of this, yeah. and and for your whole for your whole career, prior to that point, what had distinguished you was a bulldog competitiveness, like an Oral Hershiser thing, you know. And in the end, that ended up that ended up hurting you, yeah. Because it absolutely did, you know. I mean, if you're yeah. If you don't pitch two complete games in the in the regional at Stanford as a freshman, if you don't throw 10 complete games, if you're not throwing 140, 150 pitches in the big games, uh, maybe maybe you stay healthy and can do it. I mean, it, the, the, comp- oh, yeah. the competitiveness was your undoing in some ways, the right? The worst thing that I could think of when I was playing was to let down other guys. Yeah. It was the worst thing. Um and it was funny because when I got into pro ball, it spun. Because then it wasn't team anymore. Then it was, I, I remember the first, I went to Ogden, Utah, which is where I was in rookie ball. And the first game, uh, and they had already started their season, so it wasn't the first game of the season, but the first game that I was there, I'm standing up in the dugout as the game starts. And I remember our manager walked by me, he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I mean, don't we stand or like it, it was so naive that well that's that's what we do right I mean you stand up during the game he's like no we don't we don't we don't stand here 
and it was like this window into this is what it is now. You um, are a personal contractor. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it was. And I, I, I wasn't ever I wasn't ever as good in that setting as I was when it felt like everybody was trying to do the same thing. Yeah. And I don't know why. Um, it's one of those things you look back on after you get done with everything and you're like, God, man, the environment. And I'm not saying it was just Stanford, but the, the, the college environment to where you'd stand in front of a bus for your buddy and you would not even think twice about it. Well, think about it. You go from an environment where your pitching coach is, you're not letting him take the ball mm-hmm. to an environment where when you get in that situation, you better let him take the ball because you know it. your next inning might not look so good and it might reflect poorly on you or it might hurt you or you know what well, I mean? And, and even further than that to where it's not up to you. Like... You're going to go out today in the minor leagues. You're going to go out today and you're going to throw 75 pitches and you're not going to throw any more than that. And of those 75 pitches, you're going to throw at least 15 breaking balls. And ultimately, if you give up 100 runs or if you give up none, you're going to do the exact same thing in five days. It's not about the final score. No. And I I still, it just, I wasn't good at it. I, I, I couldn't, um, I just wasn't as good at it. Uh, the broadcasting thing came pretty naturally to you, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I that I could see myself doing when I was growing up, just because we would screw around on the bench and do it, and and I don't know, just because you know we we would go through you know, Euchre's whole monologue when he would come back on Major League and all this stupid stuff that, that, <laughs> that just. I don't know. I mean, it, you know, there's so much downtime in a baseball game that it gives you it gives you excuses to do so many things that you otherwise just wouldn't do. And and one of those is talk, right? Exactly. And I I do know when I did it the first time, um, I, I had no idea what I was doing, and and they didn't really say a whole lot. I think in part because it was pay per view and nobody was watching and. Like just whatever, go out and do a few games, and we'll pat you on top of the head and call it good. And there was the box in front has a cough button and has a talkback button, and the talkback button is the button that goes back to the truck. And so, you know, the producers talking in my ear early in the game about whatever had happened or a replay that was coming or something else, and I just start talking back to them, not pushing the talkback button, but just start talking back to them on the <laughs> because it was so foreign to me that somebody's talking to me when I'm talking. And your natural reaction your whole life is somebody talks to you and you respond to them. Um, so I was as green as green got. And I felt like I had to say something about literally everything that happened in the game. Right. So, I mean, it would be the most mundane thing. And I'm trying to make it interesting. And it, it, at some point, you, you realize, well, those are the guys I hate listening to because all they do is talk the whole time. And I, I remember one of our coordinating producers after we got done, he's like, you know, you had some really good points, but you got to realize you're on television, you're not on radio. And people could see it. And so if a guy hits a routine ground ball to the second baseman and it's the first out of the inning, there's really nothing to talk about. You don't have to say, nice play by the second baseman. No, I mean, yeah. if they just <laughs> saw it. Like, it, it, it's not, you don't have to, you're not explaining everything like you are on radio. And it took years. For me to figure that out, and and now I probably talk less than I should sometimes. Sometimes you will go. I mean, I'm, it's surprising sometimes you'll go two minutes without saying a word. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I, and I <laughs> it was we had a game. Tom Hart and I had a game last year. Uh, it was TCU and A and M and the Supers. And A and M does this whole ball five, ball six, ball seven deal when guys throw more than four straight balls, and it's jammed. And the, the poor kid, I don't remember who it was, ended up throwing nine straight balls. So he walks one guy, he walks the next guy, walks one guy on four, walks the next guy on four, throws the first pitch ball to the next guy. And the whole place is yelling ball nine, and they're on their feet. I bet we didn't talk combined for two, two and a half minutes and just let the director work. And it was the best piece of television that we did in the three days that we were there because we couldn't make it any better. And I think that's what I've tried to do over time is figure out, okay, if I'm going to talk, how does it make it more interesting? Or how do I explain something that happened? If ultimately I can't make it more interesting, I'm not going to say anything. That's pretty good discipline, though, Kyle. Well, it's not that way all the time. but um, And it helps when you got a really talented play-by-play guy. And I've been fortunate to work with really talented play-by-play guys. So it's it's I think what I've tried to do over time is do a game the way that I like watching a game. So... Every time I watch a game that Sutcliffe is doing, I learn something. Uh, every time I watch a game that Smoltz is doing, I learn something. Every time I watch a game that Booney's doing, I learn something. But with those guys, I don't feel like they're incessantly talking over and over and over again. It feels like when they talk, they're pointing something out, and you're like, yeah, I didn't really see it that way. Baseball's a quiet game. Yeah. You have to accept that. Yeah, and, and, and it's you, know, you, you can only make it so exciting. I mean, if it's a one nothing game in the fifth inning, it, yeah, I mean, we can get into some pitch and stuff, but ultimately it's still a one nothing game in the fifth inning. There's limited things from an action standpoint that have happened, and it's just taken a long time for me to be comfortable with that component of it. Have you, how have you dealt with, I mean, when you talk pitching, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's clear you're, you're speaking at a level that 98% of the people haven't experienced, okay? And that's really cool because it's like you're talking about with Sutcliffe. It's insightful. Right. How do you do it with hitting? Because there's a you know the other half of the game is was that a challenge for you? I do it in the inverse, and I do it in ways when I look at hitters, I look at ways that I can beat them. So, and I've always been that way. Like I would want to go watch batting practice because I wanted to see what guys were working on. And ultimately, if a guy's really working on going the other way, it probably means he's not going the other way that much right now. And if that's the case and he's really working on going the other way, then there better be a little bit more room inside with the fastball because if he's focused on trying to get the barrel out, stay and wait, get it the other way, he's probably not going to get to the inside fastball. So every time that I would look at a hitter, and I don't know hitting mechanics all that well. I just don't. But I'll see certain things that I would see on the mound that in my mind said, I think I can go here. Or I'd see a reaction on a take. Or I'd see a guy's hand position when he goes. Last weekend, for instance... Jaron Kendall's leading off. Jaron Kendall's going to be a top five overall pick in draft this year. Jaron Kendall leads off against a kid named Adam Hill from South Carolina. And in Kendall's first at bat, he swings through two straight fastballs with the barrel under the fastball. You don't see that very often. Now, you might see guys that get beat with a fastball and they're a little bit late, but very, very few times do you consistently see hitters swing under a fastball multiple times in the same at bat. And so it gave us right away in the game something to watch and say, okay, spin rate has become this huge thing in baseball now. It was obvious at that point that Hill's spin rate is different than others because if it's not, Kendall is reacting, thinking the ball is going to naturally move down in the zone the way that it has his entire life. It wasn't that day. It was staying on plane a little bit longer. So it gave us something to talk about at the beginning to say, okay, 
Watch how he uses the fastball today and how many swing throughs he gets. And you could literally see it with the first hitter of the game based on what the swing showed you. Now, I can't tell you mechanically exactly what he was doing wrong. It looked like the barrel was dragging a little bit, but I know that he was swinging under a fastball multiple times, and he's one of the most talented hitters in the country. So if that's the case, if I'm on the mound, I'm throwing fastballs until you show me as a team that you can do something else with it. It's a long way of saying when I break a hitter down or when I see something from a hitter's standpoint, ultimately I'm trying to look at it from the standpoint when I was 60 feet away. How do I think I could beat him? Where don't I want to go? And it kind of, in a backwards way, gets me to hit him because I can't tell you all the mechanics of this and that and the hands and the barrel position and everything else because I was never a very good hitter. Yeah. But you just always tried to pick the things out that, that the guy standing there was, was vulnerable with. How much prep do you do versus other guys and you know uh, your peers do you think you know I don't know I mean from a pitching standpoint I'll go you know like tomorrow night we've got Vanderbilt in Florida and I'll, I'll now with ESPN 3 I can go back and watch well with Vanderbilt I saw Raby's previous start but I'll go back and watch Fajardo some of his previous starts see what he looked like but most of my prep a lot of my prep will be on the guys on the mound because that's I can talk with that in more in detail and then We'll talk to the coaches a little bit more about from an offensive standpoint, what are they working on? I love working with Burke because when I work with Burke, I feel like Berkey can pick everything out from an offensive standpoint. I can pick everything out from a pitching standpoint. The two can combine into one conversation that neither one of us can have if the other one's not there. And I think it brings something different into the broadcast that otherwise can't be there. Um, I think catchers are the only guys that's probably why it makes them such good major league managers. They can talk to both sides of that more than almost anybody else because no matter what you did you just didn't experience enough of both sides of the game unless you were a catcher because you had to deal with pitchers the whole time and obviously you had to play defense and hit um, but from a prep standpoint I used to way 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 over prep but I would over prep on information um, I wouldn't necessarily over prep on uh, game related athletic things and so ultimately what I found and I had a guy at ESPN probably seven or eight years ago tell me he's like you know what you sound really good but you sound like a play-by-play guy sometimes, and that's not your job. Your job is to analyze. Your job is not tell me where the guy went to high school. That's the guy sitting next to you's job. So ultimately, if you're doing that and he's doing that, you're not doing enough analysis. And so I went a period of time where I literally did no prep, and I just showed up and did the game because all I wanted to do was react to what I saw. And I felt like if I don't have anything factual to go back on from an information standpoint, I'm in this really uncomfortable position to where I have to only react based on what I see. It was almost like this stupid test to see whether or not I can actually do that, or am I seeing more when I do it. And so my prep now is more to get enough background information on what's going in, but at the same time try to get the, the, the analysis-based, enough of an analysis-based background coming in that you've got a good base, um, but at the same time have as much of it being react to what I see as possible. Is that the most useful piece of advice you've gotten in 14 years? Yeah, and I don't know if he even knew how useful it would be because um, there's not, ESPN has given me incredible opportunities, but it's not like there's a class. And the class is you're on live television and you go back and watch a little bit of afterwards where people give you feedback and, and it's human nature and this is what I try to do differently in my job now it's human nature for everyone to say nice things to you 
So when you get done, it's human nature for people to everybody slaps high fives and you go have a beer and wasn't that the greatest? Yeah, you're on, you're on TV. Yeah. Yeah, that was awesome. That's cool great. seeing you on TV. But what it's not human nature is for somebody to say, you know what, in the fourth inning, there was an opportunity when the guy rolled over the ground ball to the second baseman, and you had talked earlier in the bat about how you're setting him up with a changeup. There was an opportunity to take that even further and explain why does the changeup set up later on in the bat. If you go a fastball in and then come back with a changeup ball away, why is there a better chance that a guy's going to roll over that pitch than if you're continually throwing fastballs? Things like that that um, it takes somebody to point out your faults. Do you have somebody like that? Uh, yeah, my play-by-play guy now. It's oh, great. really? Hart is, Tom is incredibly talented. And our according to producer now is very, very good. And my producer. I know him so well that we're all comfortable with each other enough to say, I like this, I like this, I didn't like that as much. Um, you know, we had a call yesterday. We're, we're doing Vanderbilt this weekend, and, and they're retiring Donnie Everett's number on Saturday, um, the kid from Vanderbilt that passed away last year. And so a lot of the conversation was, okay, how are we going to cover this? Because this cannot be a mention. It cannot, we, we need to make sure that we're doing the university justice, the family justice, the kid justice. Um, and it was a really healthy conversation with guys that I've worked with for a long time about challenging each other to make sure that we're all on the same page going in. There's plenty of preparation um, because it needs to be done right. And I'm in a place now, there, and here too, which is awesome, that everyone respects each other enough that there's, most of the time, there's no feelings involved in it. Um, you can take criticism as what it is, which everybody's trying to make the other person better, and ultimately it, it does. Um, and there's not that many people that will do that. And there weren't that many people at the beginning that would do that. There were a few, but there weren't, there weren't many. And so ultimately you kind of keep doing what's comfortable because nobody else is telling you to do it differently. Well, and college baseball was not, there wasn't a ton of broadcast attention to no. it. So, you know, it's not like, oh, we got to fix Kyle Peterson's you know, analysis or this isn't going to work because there wasn't much of it. No, and I, I had more of a college baseball knowledge base than a lot of guys that would step in another position because a lot of those guys had been playing pro ball for 10 years. You know, so I could go, it probably sounded okay because I could go back on, I remember when so-and-so was here and make it sound good to someone at home, but it wasn't, I wasn't doing my job. All I was doing was kind of filling airtime because I felt like that's what I was supposed to do. And I wasn't really analyzing the game the way that I think you're supposed to. You know, for years it drove me crazy because ESPN would bring in guys, especially for the championship series, but uh, for the CWS in general, they'd bring in guys who you could almost tell they hadn't watched a college baseball game all year. And meanwhile, Kyle Peterson, who's watched hundreds of them, uh, they got you down in front of the dugout or something like that. Uh, it was an interesting strategy, and yet you eventually, you know, made the transition, and it had to be really something to be in the in the booth, uh, yeah. calling games at the CWS. That was as fulfilling a day as anything that I had. What day? The day that when I knew I was going to be in the booth for the balance of the College World Series the first year, and I, I don't. I mean, it was at TD, I know that, so it was probably four or five years ago. Um, 
because it was hard. I mean, it was hard to get to that point, and it was hard to fight the name battle every year, and it was hard to see what you're talking about and see guys who are wonderful guys and, and in their own right are very good broadcasters, but ultimately haven't covered the game the whole year. And so that's hard for them to come in in that situation and just have a historical knowledge or know the coaches or have seen the kids during the course of the year. Um, that, and I would get the worst sunburn every year because I was sitting on the field for two weeks straight. <laughs> um, and at the time, I'm losing more hair, and so the top of my head was just absolutely beat red by the end of it. But it, So one, it was more comfortable sitting up there, but two, it was really fulfilling um, because I felt like I actually really had to work to get to that point um, because it was overcoming a lot of the name stigma and the... Because uh, I didn't play as long as those guys. I mean, virtually anybody else that I work with, from an analyst standpoint, they played longer at the major league level than I did, and that's always going to be the case because I wasn't there very long. And so you got to fight it, you got to fight it, and you got to fight it until hopefully you get to the point to where you're seen as. And I don't want to do major league games. I love doing little league world series. That's fun, but I have no interest in doing the major leagues. I don't belong there. I don't have enough shared experiences. Can I go break a pitcher down? Sure. Can I go tell you what it's like to? You know, break camp out of spring training or be in a playoff hunt at the end of the year. No, I can't tell you any of that because I didn't do it. From a college game, I feel like I could tell you most of the things because I did experience most of those things. And that's, that's why it's more fun. Thanks for listening to Where I Come From. You can check us out on Omaha.com slash podcasts or on iTunes where you can also check out Extras with Kyle Peterson as he talks about Darren Erstad in Nebraska, concerns about the CWS at TD Ameritrade Park, and what it's like to be the parent of a 12-year-old baseball player. Thanks to Bird Creek for the music. If you have ideas for guests, send them to Dirk.ChatElaine at OWH.com.